Well, last week, we had the amazing opportunity. I thought it was an amazing opportunity. I'm sure some of you feel the same way. Uh, to witness, to read, to study how God intervened in the life of Saul, the persecutor. We got to see how he saved and rescued him from spiritual death, spiritual blindness, how the light shone around him and the Lord spoke to him and regenerated him right in that very moment, illuminated him, gave him understanding, brought him into relationship with himself, with Jesus, and really how he also prohibited or kept Saul from going into the Damascus region or through the walls of the city of Damascus and wreaking havoc upon the Lord's church there. Uh, what, a, what an act of divine mercy uh, towards the very bride of Christ that Christ gave by rescuing Saul because he was going into the city to, to do some serious damage. And so we got to read that wonderful story. I know, you know, whenever I contemplate the Lord saving sinners and, you know, me being, in my mind and heart, the chief of them, as Paul called himself, it just... It just shatters me. I just can't wrap my mind around it, and it just leads me to a place of, of yeah, pure joy, but wonder and mystery and tears, you know? And so if uh, you don't like a pastor who weeps when he preaches once in a while, you're probably not going to like this church, man, because I get, I get to turn it into a big slobbery baby up here at times when I just contemplate the goodness of the Lord. Don't we all, though, in some way, shape, and form at times? There's some guys that are just, well, you know, and they're just so serious, and I would never, you know, and it's like, eh, whatever, buddy. You know? Man, it's a good thing just to, to be shattered and broken over the Lord's goodness. And, um, and so, yeah, I got a little jacked up. Oh, well. Um, but it was a good thing that we read. It was a good thing that we studied. I was really excited about it, and I really sensed God moving in my life last week. Um, I had this great joy all week when I just kept considering the miracle that he worked in my own life. And then we got kind of, we're going to be looking at this new section of study that's rather interesting. Um, we're going to study the events that, that took place um, it looks chronologically accurate or in order to say that these things happened directly after Saul was saved and went into the city of Damascus. So we're going to be looking at the things that just followed right after that. We're going to be looking at Acts 9, uh, 10 to 25. It's a pretty big chunk, but it's a very fluid piece of scripture. Um, it's all connected. To try to divide it, uh, I just think, would have messed with the narrative. And so we've got a big piece to look at. And, and as we work through the text, um, I, I will point out what I noticed. And I'm sure there's more. That, that you, you will see more of these things, and you're already going to know of more things than this. But I'm going to point out like 12 things that I noticed in this text that should characterize the life of a follower of Jesus. I will call them marks, the mark of a follower. Um, they're not in any particular order. I mean, they're in the order that the that scripture brings them out. So I didn't, you know, try to choreograph them. I didn't try to structure them in such a way that this would lead to this and this would lead to this. They're not illustrated that way in the text. So don't think of these things as an ordo salutis um, or order of salvation or something like that. Um, it, it's not that at all. Uh, keep in mind, too, that this will not be a comprehensive list, meaning there are other things that 
should attribute, should be ascribed to, should characterize the life of a follower. These are just things that are here in this text. And, and I hope that they will be edifying. I hope that they will build you up. I hope that they will be helpful for your life. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of excited about preaching a little bit more topically this time. We're definitely going to expound on, on the lines, but there are topics here. And I think that the temptation that I had, because I used to be a topical-only preacher where I would just, you know, pick a section and grab the topics out of it and, and flush those out without really examining the rest of the text, that's a temptation that every preacher feels and senses and, and has to deal with. And when you look at this text, that's what you want to do. You just want to go line by line and just kind of not really mess with those and grab those topics and then and build from there. But we're not going to do that. We're going to expound, and then I'll draw them out kind of as we hit them. But I hope they're helpful. And uh, I know they are to me. <sighs> Let's read our main text, 9, 10 through 25, and then I'll pray, and then we'll begin to examine and apply the word of God. Amen? Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, 12, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road in which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. In 25, our last verse, but his disciples took him away took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, and it says, lowering him in a basket. Father God, I, I pray, Lord, that we'd have open hearts and minds right now, Lord, to you, that we'd be humbled in this moment, um, that the humbling had began when we started singing songs about how marvelous and beautiful and amazing and strong and eternal and all these things that you are, Lord. I pray that the humbling would have began there and that it just kind of multiplied as we heard your you know, word read. And now we're just at a place where we're softened and, 
and humbled and open to you, Lord, open to learn from you, open to hear from you, Lord Jesus. Uh, that is what you intend to do, to speak to each of us um, corporately and as individuals. God, I pray that you would apply your word to each of us in your own special way, Lord. Uh, what resonates with so-and-so right now is not going to resonate as much as this thing would with this guy. And so speak to us now as individuals, but build us up as a church on mission for your glory, for your namesake, for the message, the hope, the good news, the gospel. Help us now, Lord Jesus. Teach us. Make us like you. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, friends, let's begin with 10 and we'll look through 12. <sighs> Hopefully you've got something to write on. You're ready to take some notes and, uh, and we're good to go. I know that little guy back there is. Listen to him. He's like, preach it, brother Phil. That's the translation right there. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Luke begins by saying that. Then he says, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, after Saul encountered the Lord Jesus on the Damascus road, and after he had been led into Damascus, into town, Luke tells us that a man named Ananias had a vision. Ananias was a Jew in Damascus and a believer of Jesus Christ. He was a follower of Jesus Christ, a member of the way. Here he is called a disciple, we see, um, and he is presented basically as one who immediately recognizes the Lord Christ, who speaks to him in a vision we see. While in Acts 22.12, he is called a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews. From Ananias' statement uh, that he had heard reports about Saul's persecutions in Jerusalem, verse 13, it may be inferred that he was not one of the Hellenistic Christians who had formerly lived in Jerusalem and who had scattered, but that he actually lived in Damascus, which is very interesting because we saw the church kind of explode and scatter and go into parts of Samaria and these other places. And since this guy had caught word from a distance, it would appear that he was already a follower of Jesus living in Damascus. So he wasn't one of these scattered believers, if we want to call them that. Now, we are not, however, told anything about how he became a Christian, and we're not told uh, much or anything really at all about the Jewish Christian community of Damascus. These things aren't included in the narrative, and uh, that's not to say that there wasn't a church there, that it wasn't thriving in these things, but we just don't see much about that at all um, for whatever reason. Uh, MacArthur suspects... And it's okay to suspect on these things, but he just suspects in one of his commentaries that Ananias may have been maybe one of the spiritual leaders at the Damascus church. And he suspects that he was probably one of Saul's targets. Ananias may have been one of the men that Saul was coming to arrest, to bind, to persecute. We don't know 
but MacArthur seems to think so. Interesting, interesting. Now, in Ananias' vision, the Lord told him to go to the street called Straight. We see it right there in the text. H.V. Morton notes, he says this, this street was a mile long and ran from one end of the city to the other, uh, basically straight as an arrow, and that nearly all the great Hellenistic cities had a road or a street like this. This was a common thing in Hellenistic cities, these Greek, you know, formed cities where Jews lived and all that. You would have this sort of road that kind of went right down through the middle of town. I think in our culture, we would call that Main Street, right? A Main Street. Unless you go to the one in Turlock that goes like this, you know, and you're like, hey, I can't keep up with this thing. The one in Ripon kind of shoots right through the middle. It's got all those nice bricks on it and everything, right? Little yellow brick road action going on there. They're not yellow, but it reminds me of the wizard. Um, but it's interesting, though, that, you know, these Hellenistic cities had these straight as an arrow road, and they'd be a mile or so long, and they'd shoot right through the middle of those cities, and that is this particular road. It was actually so straight, like an arrow, it was called Straight Street. Why think of something else? We would probably call it the drag strip, right, because that's where all the kids would be racing their cars on Main Street, but this was like a Yosemite Boulevard or something like that that just shot right through the straight of town. Very interesting. Now, once... He arrived at the street called Straight or Main Street. He was to go to the house of a man named Judas, not Iscariot. You know, you start thinking of these guys and Judas and these guys, and it reminds us of these men of infamy and, you know, these bad guys and stuff. And this guy was apparently a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, he was a good guy, and so this wasn't a weird, you know, sort of, Oh, Judas, you know, I'm not sure if I'd name a kid if I had another one, if I had a boy Judas just because, but, you know, Judas was a very common name, and this guy was apparently a follower of Jesus Christ, and so Saul, or Ananias, actually was to go to his house. Now, once at Judas's house, once Ananias arrived at his house, he was to look for a man from Tarsus named Saul who would be praying or who would have been praying. Now, the Lord told Ananias that during Saul's prayer, while he was praying, he would see a vision of a man named Ananias coming into the house to lay hands on him to restore his sight. This is just funny to me. It's comical. It's amazing. We have two visions given by the Lord to two different people. In Ananias' vision, he was told to go, told to, go to Saul. In Saul's vision, he was told that Ananias was coming to him. Isn't that interesting how the Lord does that and how he works that out? You know, you're going to go in and lay hands, and he's going to see you coming in a vision. I mean, that'd just be weird. How would you distinguish, like, am I awake now? The guy's standing in front of me. I mean, this is interesting. It's really incredible. Now, it's comical in the sense that long before authors, long before movie makers, long before all these different folks started teasing our imaginations with these kinds of things, these paranormal, weird, crazy, this happened over here and this happened, premonition kind of bizarre things. Long before any of this stuff started to tease us, the Lord was actually doing it throughout all of history. In fact, your Bible is, is filled with a multitude of stories where there are miracles and visions and God lining things up miraculously and all of these things happen. I just think that's so interesting. And people are just 
absolutely consumed with that kind of stuff today. They love that whole thing. They think it's kind of cool and deja vu and all this. And the tragedy is that the overwhelming majority reject the word of God where there's real accounts of this stuff. But they certainly believe the psychics. They certainly believe, you know, Hollywood. They believe the authors. You know, they, they believe the little tales that are told in, in the newspapers and these things. And, and, you know, and I think a lot of that's demonic stuff that's going on there. In fact, the majority of it probably is. Not to say that the Lord doesn't still do those things, and especially in parts of the Middle East. But it's really sad how people just, oh, yes, I'm so into that, this psychic or this. And, man, are you kidding me? The word of God is just filled with stories that would just spin your head, man, because God has done these kinds of things throughout all ages and generations. It's just amazing to me. With that being said, I'd like to point out, point out our first mark of a follower of Jesus Christ, and that would be prayer. That would be prayer. Verse 11, we saw it clearly. Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man um, of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. I find it to be absolutely spectacular that within the first couple of days of Saul being saved, he's praying, he's praying, he's praying, he's praying. In fact, if you read his epistles, if you read his writings, we would call him a praying fool. I pray for you, church at Philippi. I pray for you, Corinthian believers. I pray for you, Ephesians. He prayed, he prayed, he prayed, and he started out this journey of faith, his walk in prayer, literally, in prayer. It's amazing to me. Now, prayer should be one of the marks of a true follower of Jesus Christ. We should be a praying people. We should be seeking the Lord in every situation for all things and just for relational reasons, just to connect with him at times in these things, not just to petition him to you know, take care of our little you know, to-do list or to take care of our Christmas shopping force. God, I need Barbies. I need roller skates. I don't have any money. I need all these things. Little Jimmy, oh, the little prince is going to be so heartbroken when he doesn't get that Aladdin doll. You know, it just... That's weird, but that's the kind of stuff that we do, right? If we pray, we, what are we praying for? We're praying for trivialities. Man, we should be a praying people, right? Praying people. Prayer is the starting point for all Christian ministry, not preaching the word, not fellowship, none of those other things. Saul knew that prayer was a starting point. He absolutely knew it. Before he gets his sight back, He's praying, he's praying, he's praying, and in his prayer, he sees a vision. He's praying. He's modeled this for us here. Started his faith with prayer, and I tell you what, man, before that axe took his head off, I guarantee he was praying. He prayed, he prayed, he prayed. We need to be a prayerful people. We do, and we all know it. We all know it. Every one of us goes, yes. But we're almost like a, a sideways bobblehead. No, I don't do it. Yes, I should do it. No, I don't. We should devote ourselves to prayer. Probably beginning with me. Do I pray? Yeah. Do I pray enough? No. Do I pray for trivial things? Yes. I do. I'm guilty. We need to change. We need to change. We see it reflected right there in the text. Prayer, prayer, prayer. Now look at how... 
Ananias responded to the Lord's command, okay? We're going to look at 13 and 14. But Ananias answered, <laughs> no problem, I'll head right over. Oh, no, no, wait, he said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. I'm not sure if you're tracking with what's going on down here on earth, Jesus. Um, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to what? Your saints. See that? He's done it to your saints at Jerusalem. And then he says, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias knew about what Saul had done in Jerusalem. He knew about his Syrian mission. How he obtained this information is uncertain. We don't know. But out of great concern for the church and great concern for himself, he questioned the Lord's instructions. He questioned the Lord's instructions. Ananias' hesitation, Ananias' questioning provides a look into how fearful the church had become of Saul. That's what it shows us. Lord, you're saying to do this, man, but this guy is this, this, and this. He knew there was fear there with him. There was fear in the church, in the region. They knew that he had come, that Saul had come to jack them up. There was fear, and his questioning seems to show that very clearly. Those of the way were absolutely terrified of Saul. Knowing in advance about Saul's Syrian mission may have led Ananias, it's probable, if he was a leader, as MacArthur says, to maybe put together a plan to take the church underground until Saul left the city. If this guy was a leader, he was so concerned about this sheep there. Even as a standard issue believer, as if that were possible, we're all leaders in some way, shape, or form, he would have been so concerned that maybe he was concocting, putting together a plan to hide the Christians. We don't know. Maybe he was just going to be out in the open and just deal with it. But I think that we can speculate that since this guy was so concerned, maybe he was entertaining some thoughts of hiding out. This guy's going to come through this place like a hurricane, like a tornado. Who knows what was going through his mind, but we know that he was certainly afraid. Now, we need to be. You've got to bear with Ananias here. We need to be very cautious. Uh, there is a temptation, as there is in me, to be a little critical of him for questioning the Lord, right? Look at this, you know. We might think to ourselves, I know I did when I read this, <laughs> fool. The Lord always knows best, <laughs> and he's in control, so why did Ananias question him? <laughs> you know, we tend to, when we see other saints, when we see in the scriptures, men, women, people sort of falter a little bit, shift, get off track, whatever it is that they do, we tend to think, <laughs> boy, they just don't get it. Oh, yeah, right. To be fair to Ananias, approaching Saul would have been like approaching other hardcore persecutors of the church, such as Agrippa, such as Nero, such as Diocletian, such as Galerius. Agrippa had John's brother James, the other apostle. He had him beheaded. He also tried to capture and kill the rest of the apostles, but they fled Jerusalem. 
The emperor Nero blamed a massive fire on Christians, which gave him the green light to capture and put them to death. He fed some to lions, and he had others dipped in tar and set on fire, using them as candles, human candles. The emperor Diocletian put forth an edict to order the destruction of all the Christian scriptures throughout Rome, and all of the, he wanted to destroy all the places of worship across the empire, and he prohibited Christians from assembling for worship. His counterpart, his partner, Galerius, took a more brutal stance, wanting to exterminate Christians. Friends, we must understand, we tend to downplay this. Saul was pretty much at that level. Okay, now these guys came in the future, but Saul was ruthless, imprisoning men and women, very rare to imprison a woman. Had Stephen butchered, beaten to death with rocks. He was a brutal, brutal persecutor of the church. And if he would have kept going, I think he would have exceeded these men that I just named. That's how much fear the church had of this guy. That's why this man's turning point was so dynamic. It would have been like Nero being rescued, who was an atrocity to the church. Horrible. So we must be fair to Ananias and not judge him critically and say, what was he thinking? Why would he question the Lord? I would have went, uh, first of all, no. Second of all, don't you know what you're asking me to do? Don't you understand? How can you ask me to do such a thing to go to such a man? I mean, I think that might have been spinning in his head. I don't know. It would have been in mine. It makes sense that Ananias would hesitate just as any human being would have hesitated. It makes sense that he would question because he was dealing with a man who struck fear amongst those of the way. Now, what did the Lord say in response to Ananias? Look at 15 to 16. But the Lord said to him, Oh, my precious little sheep, never mind. But the Lord said to him, Go. Imperative. Not, maybe you should go. No. Go. Imperative. Command. Go. And then he says, For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And then he said, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Notice how the Lord did not coddle Ananias. Notice how he did not right off the bat really try to assure him that things would be okay. He didn't say, ah, oh, I understand. He simply said, go. A strong imperative. Strong. Go. And then he began to describe how he would use Saul. He's giving Ananias a vision here, communicating to him how he was going to use Saul. Saul was to become the Lord's chosen instrument. Instrument is a term used in the King James Version, if you have one. Um, it is used in that particular version that connotes tools or utensils, weapons or implements. This reminded me of my old days as a carpenter when I got out of high school. Um, you know, I, I became an apprentice carpenter. 
all I could do really was pound my thumb with a hammer and scream, you know. I mean, I just didn't have the skills or the ability. I couldn't even read a tape measure. They'd go, uh, cut me 13 and 5 eighths. I'd go 13, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. I'd count on the lines, you know. Um, but, but as I, you know, worked with these guys and, and, and practiced and worked and redid things over and over and over, I mean, I almost hung a door upside down one time. It's like, hey, this thing doesn't look right. There's a gap up at the top. That's because that's the bottom. Oh, you know, I mean, I was a nimrod. But as I worked and learned the skill, I started buying tools and stuff, and I had all these great tools. I had hammers and nail guns and, and chisels and saws and sanders, lots of sanders. You always know a good carpenter, he doesn't have a lot of sanders. He doesn't have to sand everything he touches, right? Man, I was a sanding, rasping fool. You know, man, look at that gap. How am I going to bring that down? With a sander. Right now, look at that miter. It's perfect. Yeah, but it's this big on this side and that big. You know, I mean, that's how I did it. But this text reminds me of that because I bought all these tools and these things. And, and, and I got to the point where I actually became a journeyman. I didn't hang doors upside down. I didn't do these dumb things anymore. I got to where I could do some pretty good work. I could build cabinets and hang them and, and mantles and, and, you know, window frames. And I could hang windows. I mean, I could do all kinds of really, really cool stuff with those tools in my hands. Apply those tools with my skills, and I could do something really, really cool. And in a way, that's what we see in the text here. Not in carpentry, even though Jesus is the master builder, the master carpenter, and he was a carpenter, but that Saul was going to be a tool in the Lord's hand. Very interesting. He's my chosen instrument, he says. And that leads to the second mark of a follower of Jesus Christ. That is that they have been, number two, chosen by God to serve God's purposes. Verse 15, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. It, it seems to me like there's a bit of a pandemic in the church. And that is that God saves people and they still believe in their hearts that they belong to themselves. Have you noticed that? Why is it that only 10 to maybe 15% of the church actually serves the church, the assembly, and really gives of tithes and offerings? I can't wrap my mind around these statistics. I can't figure it out. The one thing that I keep saying to myself is that maybe there's just a whole lot of people in church that really aren't saved. I can't judge their hearts, but man, we can sure assess their you know, their actions and the things that they do. Gosh, what did James say? Faith without works ain't faith. It's called el corpso, dead, right? And so there are far too many people, I believe, in the church today that really, really, truly believe, and it really is an Americanism, that they belong to themselves. That God saved me and rescued me because I am the cherry on top of his glorious creation Sunday. It's all about me. It's all me, 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 me. Bunch of me monsters, right? Brian Regan, you, me, right? We're me, 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 me. And in fact, the reason why a person is saved by God is for his purpose, not for your purpose, not for my purpose. It isn't so that I could just run around enjoying salvation and continue to be me and continue to, you know, uh, just uh, pamper myself and concern myself solely with me. 
or even with somebody next to me like a spouse or a child. God saves people. He chooses them for his purposes to accomplish his will to construct his kingdom here on earth, which will come to the full glory of the return of Jesus. You have been chosen by God to serve God's purposes, not your own. I hope you understand that, church. If you understand that, you'll live your life differently. That doesn't mean that you won't care for your basic needs in these things. Of course you will. You have to have food. You have to have shelter. God provides those things. He's wonderful, merciful, gracious. But know that you have been chosen by God to serve God's purposes. That is why he saved you. We look at that wonderful Psalm 23. His entire ministry of salvation and sanctification towards us culminates with the point of it all. And that's his name's sake. Not that so you could have your best life now. It's for his name's sake that he does what he does. And you know what? It's a wonderful thing to be chosen by God because I know that I couldn't choose him. I was dead in sin. And it's wonderful to know that he chose me, yes, out of love, yes, by grace, yes, amazing, 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 but that he chose me for a purpose that's much bigger than myself. Man, when my world is all about me, it's a cruddy world. But when I begin to see the global plan of God throughout our world, wow, I'm a part of that. I'm a part of that big meta-narrative that's playing out. That's a spectacular thing to be invited into, friend. And if all you do is focus on yourself, you're missing the bigger picture. And guess what? You're not going to have the joy that you should have. You're not. You're not. Because it only comes through acknowledging, understanding, and living according to his purpose and doing his will. When you do that, whoa. Believe it, know it, it's the truth. Notice also how the Lord describes Saul's mission to Ananias. He said, Ananias, Saul is going to what? Carry my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Saul's mission, his calling, how he would be used, would be to take the gospel to Gentiles or non-Jews, it says. The Lord undoubtedly had Romans and Greeks in mind, um, probably beyond that, but really that's the area that he lived. The Roman Empire went from basically Spain all the way to the northern tip of Africa. It wrapped all the way around the Mediterranean Sea. Saul's mission field would be to, from basically Jerusalem and up. He'd shoot out to the sea, hit some of those islands out there, and cover most of the Roman Empire. Saul was to also proclaim the gospel to kings, it says. Wow, to kings. Can you imagine? You're going to proclaim it to the average Joe and to kings. Ooh, kings. How intriguing. We will see that later in Acts. And then he says, and then to the children of Israel, the Jews. Now, there isn't a specific order. Things happen the way God orchestrated them. I guess in God's mind there's an order, but it wasn't that he'd do Gentiles first and then he'd do kings and then he'd do this. Don't think of it like that. He'd minister to all of them at the appropriate time. Now, when we think of Saul, who obviously became Paul, we'll see that soon, we tend to think of him as a minister to Gentiles only. Uh, that's my default. Oh, he was the great guy that took you know, the gospel throughout the whole Roman Empire and reached all of those 
you know, Greek folks and Roman folks, and I'm a Greek because I'm not Jewish, and you know, and blah, blah, blah. We tend to think that. But Saul had a tremendous, tremendous, I can't, I just can't express how tremendous of a heart he had for the Jewish people. He worked tirelessly to reach them for Christ. Listen to what he wrote in Romans 9, 3. This will give you a taste of his love for his brethren. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He wrote that he would have been, if it were possible, he would have been willing to give up his own salvation for the salvation of his own kinsmen, the Jews. That's deep love. If you don't think God has a plan for the Jews, that he's going to rescue multitudes of them, and some reformers take this position where it's just, he's just done with them. No. No. He's not finished with his people. I praise God for someone like Jen who's here today who ministers specifically to Jews. We must not forget them. Saul, Paul, went after them. He'd been willing to give up his own salvation. A little later in verse 20 of our text, we see that the first people he proclaimed Christ to was Greeks. No, Hellenistic Jews. He actually went into their synagogues. He wanted to reach his people for Jesus. He wanted them to know what he knew. He wanted them to understand and experience the Messiah, their only Messiah. He had a tremendous heart for them. So he was, again, called to preach Jesus to Gentiles, kings, and to his own people, the Jews. And he so did that when we look at the rest of the scripture. Now, look at what, um, what, look at what else he was to do. I'll put it that way. This is interesting. I wrestled with this, but it says the Lord told Ananias basically that he would also, what he'd do all this ministry, but that he would suffer for the sake of the name of the Lord. If you've ever studied his epistles, you'll know that he suffered. Suffered greatly. 1 Corinthians 4, 9 to 13, 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 29, and 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10 catalog the suffering Saul or Paul endured for the sake of his Lord. Man, did he suffer. And his suffering, which never stopped until an axe severed his devout head from his faithful body didn't wait long to begin, only a few days, as we will see. Now, how did Ananias respond to the Lord's correction? Go, he said. Look at 17. Okay. <laughs> I just love to add that right there. Okay. You know, he didn't say it, but I'm thinking, okay, right? 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Okay. And laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, look at this, Brother Saul. It's like he's Baptist. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that what? You may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, knowing that Saul was to be the Lord's chosen instrument or a chosen instrument of the Lord brought tremendous peace to Ananias. 
He knew that Christ had worked the miracle of salvation in him. If he were to use, think about it, him as his chosen instrument, then he would have to be saved. And, you know, as far as preaching the gospel to kings and, you know, not to say that people who are out of Christ aren't an instrument of his. God uses all things in people for his namesake glory. But, man, he knew when the Lord told him he's going to be my chosen instrument. He's going to preach to Gentiles and kings and your brothers, the Jews. He knew that he had worked a miracle of salvation. His fears had left him. And what did he do? He then departed from where he was. And he went to Straight Street, Main Street, and into the house of Judas. Now, moments after, maybe during, I think it was moments after Saul's prayer and vision, Ananias showed up. <laughs> what a trip. Oh, Lord, I can't see. Show me your will. Give me my sight. Ananias is going to come heal you. Okay, amen. Hi, Ananias. Right? I mean, it's like... It was like almost instantaneous. Are you Ananias? I just heard in a vision here that a guy named Ananias was going to come heal me. Are you? I hope you're Ananias. I am Ananias. Praise the Lord, right? I mean, this is just, this is like cool, man. I mean, I'd be tripping. I'd be like, wow, this is what he's doing here. Like moments after he prays and sees this vision, Saul is there, man. And what does he do? He calls Saul brother. He didn't come in and, like, stand on the other side of the room. I'm here to help you, right, you know? I mean, he just came up to him, and he stood next to him, and he, he said, Brother Saul. He addressed him as Adelphos, brother in Greek. And here, man, the imperative is brother in Christ. That's the meaning, brother in Christ. Brother in Christ Saul is what he says. This is amazing. He didn't see him as an adversary. He didn't think of him as an adversary. He saw him as a brother in Christ. He then goes on to tell Saul why he came. Brother Saul, blah, 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 blah. He said, the Lord Jesus, we'll paraphrase, who appeared to you, right? Remember, you got blinded? Over there on the Damascus Road outside the gates. Yeah, I heard about it. Pretty cool. Not for you, but yeah. Uh, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you, sent me. To heal you, to heal your sight, and to anoint you with the Holy Spirit. And that brings me to the third mark of a follower of Jesus Christ, and that is that they have had a, and this is a no-brainer, but you got to say it. I know everyone's going to go, we all know this. They must have had a saving encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came. That was the moment of Saul's salvation. And the reason why I say this is because it is imperative that a truly saved follower person has an encounter with Jesus. Uh, whether it be through prayer, and I am not a fan of the prayer of salvation. You know, I, I, I'm, not, I, I, I'm not a big fan of, you know, preaching a message and grinding on people hardcore and then saying, if you want to be saved, pray this prayer. I don't know. That just is weird to me. But if you ever read J.C. Ryle, he'll tell you, the only way you're going to get saved is if you come to the Lord in prayer and beg for stinking mercy. I mean, there's an entire chapter on it. I was like, I'm tired of reading this, Ryle. I love you, but you're killing me. Come to him in prayer. Come to him. Throw yourself at his mercy seat. Bring your sins to the throne of grace. 
Pray, pray, pray. Have an encounter. You're going to have an encounter if you're a true follower. You have had an encounter with Jesus. I wonder how many people just float around in the church and have never had an encounter with Jesus. They hear about him all the time. They hear about all the wonderful things that he can do for them and all of that. And somehow, they never have an encounter with him personally. Now, don't get me wrong. Our encounter doesn't have to be as insane as we're on our way into series to persecute a bunch of Christians over there. And all of a sudden, I can't see, you know. It doesn't have to be as dramatic as what happened to Saul. That was pretty dramatic. If he was on a horse, he probably fell off. Okay? It doesn't have to be, well, I didn't have the spectacular Hollywood version of an encounter. So be it. But you still had to have an encounter. You still had to come to him, and he had to, or he came to you, and you acknowledged him, and you had an encounter. You met him for the first time. It had to have happened. Even if you were raised in the church, I've had nothing but encounters with him my whole life. Praise the Lord, but you have to have a saving encounter with him. You have to. Whether that be through prayer or as it was with Saul, a miraculous vision. Are we going to say that he still doesn't do those things? I'm not going to bind God. I can just tell you this. He saves people all the time through the preaching of his gospel, through basic Bible reading and all of these things. But they have an encounter. You must have an encounter. He comes to you. And you go, oh, that's what happened to me. At the pinnacle of my sin and rebellion, he came. And I wasn't blind for three days. I was blind my whole life. And then I could see. It was dramatic because it was like this. I hate you. I love you. It was an encounter. It was real. It was legit. And it is completely necessary. You must have an encounter with Jesus. Notice how it says that Ananias laid his hands on Saul. Sound familiar? We just read about how Peter and John gave the Holy Spirit to the Samaritan believers through the laying on of hands. And Ananias seems to be doing the same thing here with Saul, does he not? He put his hands on him. That's how he regained his sight. And that is how he received the Holy Spirit. And of course, that leads to the fourth mark of follower of Jesus Christ, and that is the Holy Spirit. And be filled, the text says, with the Holy Spirit. And if you've had an encounter, a real one, you have the Holy Spirit. That will be the most defining mark in your life, is the presence of the very living God in That's as much a no-brainer as an encounter. And yet, there are multitudes within the church that roam to and fro who seem not to 
not to have ever had an encounter and most certainly do not seem to have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the mark. It is the seal of the very presence of God, the mark and seal of his salvation, true salvation. You will have as a follower the Holy Spirit in you. That's where this new love of God comes from. That's where this hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's where this hunger, that's why we devour the word and we love the fellowship and all of these things. It comes because of the manifestation of God in your personal life, i.e. the Holy Spirit. Listen to Saul's account of what happened in Acts 22, 12 to 16. I think we had that read earlier, more of it than this. He gives more details about this whole experience right here. This was read earlier. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, he said, I received my sight. And I saw Ananias. And then he said this to me, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. The details here show that the Lord used Ananias to do more than heal Saul's sight, more than to just anoint him, important, anoint him with the Holy Spirit. The Lord also used Ananias to communicate Saul's mission to him and to officially commission him for gospel service. He came to heal his sight, to impart the Holy Spirit to him, and to give him his marching orders. This is amazing how Ananias was used by God here. And, and, and later, years later, Paul, formerly the artist known as Saul, he reflects back on it and says, man, that's where I got my marching orders. You want, let me give you a little glimpse of why I've done my ministry and things the way that I've done them and all that because of what happened then with Ananias way back in Damascus. I received my sight, the Holy Spirit, that power that calling, that ministry, and I've never ceased from doing it. I've never left it. It's amazing. Look at 18 to 19. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Wow, is this a loaded couple of verses. F.F. Bruce wrote that a type of flaky substance fell from Saul's eyes like a crust or something. And as I was studying this, I was eating pumpkin pie and I got grossed out because they had a crust. I was like, gross. He had pies in his eyes. Yeah. I seriously, I was studying this and I was gobbling down. It was like Thanksgiving, man. And I was like, okay, I can relate to this. F.F. Bruce said it was pie crust. I got it. It was just bizarre. I mean, people think it's figurative or, you know, or metaphoric or whatever. I think something really came off his eyes. Apparently it was Costco pie crust. Now listen, man. Saul had been physically blind for three days. 
but he had been spiritually blind, as I said about myself, his whole life. When the Lord restored his sight through Ananias, he saw the world differently. The filter of Pharisaical Judaism had been removed. The scales fell off. The strange combination of nationalism, animal sacrifice, and works righteousness, which is really what Judaism had become during those days, it was gone. The Lord Jesus gave Saul a new heart. He gave him new eyes to see the world differently. And that leads to the fifth mark of a follower of Jesus, and that is illumination. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, verse 18. Illumination, key thing, key thing. How would we describe illumination? How about the ability to discern truth from error? How about the ability to interpret and understand Scripture and to understand the world and its false philosophies and its lies? That's what illumination means. God brought light into your heart, and now you can understand truth, and you couldn't before. The follower of Jesus has experienced this miraculous thing of illumination. They can now see, discern, understand the truth, they begin to view the world differently. We would say their worldview changes. They can discern the errors, the false philosophies, the false religion, and those kinds of things. It's really amazing. It's really amazing that Christians, even new Christians, who haven't spent a lot of time studying the word, all of a sudden have this incredible ability to begin to do this. It's just like the Holy Spirit says, wrong! Ah, wrong. And it grows as they grow. Illumination is huge. Huge. The text says that after he received his sight, Saul was baptized. Saul wasted no time in publicly declaring his faith. I'm always blown away by how Christians do this. I can't wrap my mind around it. Well, I was saved 25 years ago, and I'm going to get baptized Sunday. Well, praise the Lord that you're doing it, but at the same time, what happened? Good night. If you look at the book of Acts, when they were saved, they were baptized. First act of obedience. I might sound insensitive or a little harsh about that, but I can't figure it out. Is it because we don't understand the scripture? What, why, why would we wait? After he received his sight, he was baptized. He wasted no time in publicly declaring his faith. He wanted to be identified with Jesus and the way immediately after being saved. MacArthur wrote, Saul arose and was baptized. By that act, he openly united with the very people he had hated and persecuted. His hated enemies became his friends, while his former friends instantly became his enemies. While keeping with the consistent pattern of believers' testimonies and acts, Saul's baptism followed his conversion. Sixth Mark baptism. If you're a follower of Jesus, I hope you've been baptized. If not, you should be baptized. You should be willing to stand before people and say, I belong to him. I'm unashamed. You should. He was baptized immediately. Now I hope that just, 
It really, baptism really is, my friends, beloved, it is important. We have two ordinances that have been given to us. Communion, baptism. One of them we do all the time. The other one, I'll get to it. Why do we view it that way? Do you not want to declare who you belong to? And I would say as a word of caution, do you belong to him? Have you had an encounter? Have you been illuminated? If that's serious to your pastor, there shouldn't be anything holding you back. Your greatest love is Christ if you're truly in him. You're like, Get that water and sprinkle me right now. Call service master. I'll go Episcopalian on you right now. Now after his baptism, the text says he took food and was strengthened. I think it's incredible that Saul chose to be baptized before eating. After three days of fasting, after three days of no food and water, being publicly identified with Jesus Christ was more important. And this was a dangerous place to do that. It was more important to him than neutralizing the groans of his stomach. Saul had his priorities in order from the very start, he began with prayer. He was baptized before he even had a meal. Can you imagine how hungry he was? Saul lived the kind of life where pleasing the Lord preceded all other things, even before meeting his own physical needs. Now, Saul may have received new eyes and a new view of the world, but he had tunnel vision for Jesus Christ. He wrote in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain and may gain Christ. Food, schmood, baptize me. Shelter, shelter, safety, safe, whatever. Christ is what matters. I hope you're inspired, not by my sermon, but by this man's example. And who was he following? The one that modeled it. Jesus. After being baptized and eating, <laughs> baptism, food, it says for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Saul hung around, allowing the Damascus believers to celebrate his conversion. He was probably still trying to convince them. <laughs> I'm not going to kill you, I swear. I love Jesus now. <laughs> I don't know. But he hung out with them. He continued 
to hang out with them, and he, he allowed them to celebrate his conversion. And guess what? He also allowed them to minister to his needs. They were more experienced than him. They were more mature in the faith than him. He was new. He was green, fresh off the boat. Probably sitting there going, I have no idea. I, can't, I just got my commissioning, but just help me understand a few things. I mean, they ministered to him. hung around with them. And this was Saul's first experience with Christian fellowship, which is unlike any other form of companionship in the world. The things that distinguish Christian fellowship from all others are really boiled down to the presence of the Lord and his joy. That is what makes Christian fellowship so sweet and uplifting. Each believer has Christ in them, and when they assemble for fellowship, the presence of the Lord seems to increase kind of miraculously. There's a greater manifestation of him as all these people who are filled with him come together. And, and what happens in the presence of the Lord? There is joy. Oh, he loved hanging out with those Damascus believers. The Lord was there, and the joy of the Lord was there. Seventh mark, a follower of Jesus, is fellowship with other believers. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Another thing I can't wrap my mind around is how believers believe that it's okay to forsake the assembly, that it's okay to not have fellowship and to come into that place of fellowship, in particular in a church assembly where there's a degree of fellowship here, but I can't, I'm, I'm trying really hard. I mean, there's times where, like, I don't feel good and, and, and things have happened, there's circumstances, I get that, but, but for the most part, I truly, as a believer, not that I'm better than any other believer, I just long to be with God's people. Because guess what? One of the things is, is that I spend all my days working in a place with people that aren't the Lord's people. <laughs> I, I, I'm in a constant mode of evangelism. That's exhausting. And I'm always having to watch myself. <sighs> okay, I'm so prone to being a nimrod. And I know what happens when I go nimrod mode on them. <laughs> we told you, you know. I don't care about me. I care about Jesus. There's something about the fellowship of believers. What would possess one of our brothers or sisters in the Lord to not want to be with other believers? People of Barna wrote a book about this called Revolution. Christians are not going to church anymore. They're not hanging out. They're at Starbucks and, ah, you know, and it's like, you're, you're, you're a moron. What are you talking about? Christian fellowship is vital to us. Forsaking it is really equivalent to forsaking the Lord. It really is. On our own, we are not just a target. We are devoured. Oh, I can fight Satan. Yeah. I heard someone one time mock the passage that says he goes around like a roaring lion. They said, he's really, when you're in the Lord, like a little chihuahua, nipping at your heels. Obviously, you don't engage in much spiritual warfare. I've had him slap me around so many times, it's not even funny. I've seen attacks on my own life and family that are breathtaking. I've watched him devour the saints. 
And right now, there are people in this very congregation that are at war with him. Don't leave the fellowship. Stay where there's safety in numbers, where you can be encouraged, where we can fight with you. One man in the armor of God is not enough. It takes an army. Please, please hear me. Do not forsake the fellowship of the Lord. Come together where we protect one another, love one another, encourage one another, build each other up, pray for one another. It sounds ridiculous, but there's a lot of Christians out there that just don't think they need it. Look at 20 to 21. Immediately, oh, man. Oh, I can't even read it. Oh, I'm going to explode. Look at this. Are you looking at this? Look at that right there. Immediately, he kicked back in the home with the fellowship and never left and did his ministry. That's a tendency that can happen to us, right? I love the fellowship so much I don't go out and do the mission of God. It doesn't say that. We've got to be real careful, though, right? Because sometimes the fellowship's the fellowship's the fellowship, and that's the pinnacle of all things. I don't ever want to leave it. It's a dangerous world out there. Look at what he did. I love it. I give commentary before I read the verse. What a dummy. Look at 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, <laughs> saying, he is the son of God. George Costanza, he is the son of God. He didn't do it like that. I'm doing it like that because that's what I want to say. And all who heard him were amazed and said, what? Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? They're going... Saul had the spirit. Saul had the joy of the Lord. Saul had the fellowship of mature believers. The combination of them all together set him ablaze for the Lord. And he went into the Hellenistic synagogues and proclaimed Christ. I think trying to hold him back at this point would have been like holding back all those folks that put their tents in front of Best Buy the other day for Black Friday. Did you see that? What an illustration. Best Buy? Camping for two days? You know what happens when you get in people's way like that? I've read it. You get killed. Getting into these synagogues was like Black Friday for Saul. I mean, he just it was like there was a starter gun. I can't wait to go in there and proclaim Christ. <laughs> Jesus, he's God. Thank you. You know? I mean, you, you couldn't, I don't think you could hold him back. Holding him back would have been like holding shoppers back. And I've always despised that. But the day after we give thanks, we live in such a way that shows that we're not thankful. Oh, thank you so much for all that you've given me next day. Consume! We've lost our way. Now this leads to the eighth mark of a follower of Jesus, and that is evangelism, sharing the gospel. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in synagogues. Being saved, the Holy Spirit, the fellowship, and 
the investment that was being made by those mature believers and his own time with the Lord in prayer and probably studying and reading and doing what he could and in those weeks and whatever, man, it just, it just culminated. And he just went out and immediately began to engage the mission that he was given. And he went right into these synagogues and did it. Started preaching Jesus, evangelism, sharing the gospel. How essential is that to us? Evangelism to the Christian should be as natural as breathing. <laughs> oh, I don't know about, yeah, you don't know. Something happened to you, friend. You ought to be sharing what happened with others. Just gossiping the gospel, sharing what God's doing and what's happened in your life. That's a cool way to do it. You don't have to get up here if this makes you nervous. You want to hurl, you get up here. I couldn't do that. You know, now maybe that's not what you're called to do. But man, Jesus should be on your lips all the time. was Saul's message? What did he preach? The text says he preached, he, Jesus, is the son of God. There's no doubt that Saul said more than this when he went into these places. Luke probably summarized his preaching for us here, but this is a loaded statement. The title son of God connotes something of the utmost importance, and that is the deity of Jesus Christ. Son of God was another way of saying that Jesus is God. Jesus is deity. Jesus claimed this for himself. When asked if he was the Son of God, he said, yes, it is as you say. That testimony cost him his life for a moment. When Saul went into the synagogues, he proclaimed and defended the doctrine of Jesus' deity. Now, I'd like to add that that particular doctrine was and still is the most contemptible of all the Christian doctrines to Jews and to others. They hated it back then. They hate it today. Therefore, going into these synagogues and proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus as God, was terribly risky business. Saul had some serious fortitude. Saul had guts to go in and stand before Jews and say, you got it wrong. The one that you killed, he is God. And guess what? I had an encounter with him on that dirt road. Ha ha. Well, he defended that doctrine. That's what he did. He had some fortitude. He had guts to go into these places of worship and to proclaim this about Jesus. Saul's determination and forcefulness in proclaiming the doctrine of Jesus as deity basically blew his listeners away. Turned their yarmulkes into boomerangs. Huh? What? Jesus, you're here, you, you're here saying this? I mean, just rocked them. The ninth mark of a follower of Jesus Christ, they should be doctrinally sound. Oh, doctrine divides, Pastor Phil. You don't know. Doctrine's bad. What's good is love. As if doctrine was the antithesis to love. Boy, the church is goofed up on this one today. Doctrine's not important. Really? Okay. We shouldn't talk about doctrine. We shouldn't go over the doctrines. We need to just get these little pragmatic things to help us live our daily lives. And doctrine's okay. It's for the theologians. It's for the scholars. Guess what? Every Christian is a scholar. Every Christian is to be a theologian. There's no such thing as the, you know, I, I'm just the average Joe. I'm a doorman at my church, and 
Doctrine's not important. Oh, how will you defend the faith if you do not understand Christian doctrine? You won't. You'll make a mess of it. Doctrine is vital. We must be doctrinally sound. How was Saul doctrinally sound? Even at the beginning of his faith, he is the son of God. Do you know how many cults don't get that right? Christian cults. He's a son of God, but he ain't God. The text says all who heard him were amazed. All would include Christians and non-Christians. That's hilarious to me. Christians that were present were going, I cannot believe the way this guy's preaching. Woo! Because Christians went to the synagogues. Can you imagine a guy who had been saved for a week preaching like that? And you're going, well, I'm not really into the rock star thing, but this guy's bad to the bone. And then the Jews were just confounded. They were like, this guy was trying to kill him, and now he's saying what they've been saying in a way that's quite extraordinary. <laughs> it says that they were amazed. Another word for amazed in Greek there is confused. We don't understand what's going on here. Whoa. That leads to the 10th mark. Followers of Jesus Christ should display a noticeable difference in speech and conduct. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? Of all those who called upon his name, boy, the people noticed the difference with this guy, did they not? And the problem in the church today is that Christians are just like the culture. There's no distinguishable difference there. Not with a lot of them. And there sure as heck should be. Christ is in you. You've had an encounter. You're illuminated. Wow. You're going to be counterculture. You're going to be different. And people are going to notice, especially your old friends, if you were saved at some point. And, you know, I don't mean if you were saved. I mean when you got saved and you were a certain way before that. Some of you can't relate to that because you grew up in the church. But there's still a difference with you. There should be. But I tell you what, man, as soon as I got saved, my friends would go around and go, hey, let's go out and do the same old thing. I'm not interested in that anymore. What the heck's wrong with you? You guys at work, there's a guy that I work with now who knew me before I was saved, and he asks almost every week, bring the old Phil back. And I said, that fool is dead on a cross. Oh, what does that mean? He's dead. He shows up once in a while. I know. Dang it. Shows up with my paycheck short, you know. You know. But they notice a difference with me. I hope people notice a difference with you. Maybe you don't say what they say. Maybe you don't behave the way that they behave. Not to say that we don't make mistakes. There should be a noticeable difference about you if you're a true follower of Jesus. 25, 22 to 25, wrapping it up. But Saul increased all the more in strength, love it, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ, is the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. 25, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Luke tells us that... Saul increased in strength, which means that his ability to present 
Jesus says God, his ability to present the gospel increased as his faith, knowledge, and wisdom grew. New believers possess some ability to contend for the faith, but their ability is limited because their knowledge and theology is limited. As they grow in knowledge and as their theology develops, their ability to contend increases. Think of when you were first saved. How expansive was your theology? Not very expansive. How deep was your understanding of the gospel? Not very deep. But you could still share Jesus, couldn't you? You could articulate the simpler aspects of the gospel, right? Sure you could. That's Luke's point here. Saul had a starting point on the Damascus Road, and after three days, he began to spend time, and you know, he was baptized, and began to spend time in fellowship, fellowship with mature believers, and his knowledge began to increase, his wisdom, his understanding of the word, his theology began to develop, and then he went out and preached Christ in the local synagogues, and the more he did that, the more his strength and ability increased. There's a progression there. So many believers live like it says in scripture, you know, crave the pure word of God like pure spiritual milk. We start out as infants and some Christians seem to go backwards and become a zygote. Uh, babies grow and become hairy men like me. And Why you started here and then the end, you're back on the pacifier. What? You know, Lily's giving you a thing, and it's a boy. Why does that happen? You've seen it, right? You've seen it. Maybe you're sitting there going, man, I'm a psycho. What? I should be progressing. I should be growing. I should be coming stronger in spiritual strength. That's my 11th point. Followers of Jesus should be growing in spiritual strength. But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Sanctification is an upward process that culminates into the image of Jesus, into glory. It doesn't go backwards. And yet so many of us live like that. And, and I get it. There's seasons where it's like, I'm just dry, man. Yeah, I get it. But dry doesn't mean I went back to being a zygote. Dry just means, oh, man, this is just tough right now. I'm still engaging. I'm still studying. I'm in the fellowship. Maybe you're not in those things. I'll tell you what, that's those areas, studying, reading the word, and the fellowship in those places, assembling for worship. Those are those places of strong growth and strength. If you forsake the assembly, good luck. I can study the word like a savage on my own, but if I don't come proclaim it and interact with you guys and mix it up, I go back to, what do you think ha happened to Harold Camping? He was a pretty solid guy at one time in his life, and guess what? He decided to get alone with the word of God, and now the world is supposed to end 94 times. He went backwards. It's possible. It can happen. We, if we're in Christ, should be growing in spiritual strength, doctrinally across the board. Luke says that his presentations 
confounded the Jews, Saul had become like Stephen. He presented Jesus as the Christ in such a way that his opponents could not stand against him. They were what? Confounded. I love that word, confounded. At a loss for words. Oh, don't even mess with that guy. I remember one time I confounded some Jehovah's Witnesses at my front door. They never came back. I just took their Bible out of their hand, even their New World translation. Blacklist. He had become like Stephen. They couldn't stand against him. They couldn't argue against him, not with their worldly philosophies and these things. Stephen, what, was a man of the truth, of the gospel. Saul was a man of the truth, of the gospel. Nothing can stand against God's truth, even though it seems to resist and do these things. Now, keeping with tradition, and I say this sarcastically, the leaders of the Hellenistic synagogues of Damascus went after Saul as their brothers in Jerusalem had gone after Stephen. They plotted for how to kill him. And that leads us to the last mark, and we're just about done. And that last mark is persecution. When many days had passed, the Jews did what? Plotted to kill him. Jews there in the Greek means the leaders, not just the average folks, the leaders of the synagogues in Damascus. They plotted for how to kill him. As followers of Jesus Christ in the good old U.S. of A., we might not have non-believers plotting to kill us, but they should still hate us. Not because we're mean, not because we're not gracious, but because we stand for the very thing they stand against. If you're following Christ, you're going to receive persecution some way, shape, or form. Maybe it's criticism. That's what I get at work all the time. Here comes the Jesus boy! I'm fine with that. Call me the Jesus boy all day. Yeah, but they mean it in a mean way. Doesn't bother me. I don't go, you're darn right on the Jesus boy. And you're the Satan boy. <laughs> the heck is that? I feel like that. I don't do it. I'm like, I'm the Satan boy. <laughs> Thank you. The Jesus boy. You're going to receive some persecution. It's going to come to you, and if you live in other parts of the world, it's going to come a lot harder. If you decide to be a missionary somewhere in China, you could have trouble there. Or Sudan, you could be killed. One of the Middle Eastern countries. It's different there. But if you're a true follower of Jesus, you should still be taking some hits here. Because you're a bearer of the truth, a child of light, illuminated, seeing the world differently seeing people's desperate need for Jesus and wanting them so bad to know him and sharing the gospel. And guess what? That ticks people off. The gospel is an offense to those who are perishable. It's an offense to the Greek. It's foolishness to them. And we're a bunch of Greeks. Now Damascus in closing had a wall all the way around it. And it had one entrance exit a large set of gates. The religious leaders posted 
24-hour guards at those gates to watch for Saul. Talk about making an impact. That probably cost him a few bucks. Putting 24-hour guards there. It says day and night, does it not? They wanted him. And the order was if he was spotted, they were to capture and kill him on the spot. No, no, no. He would not receive the same courtesy that Stephen did, is if we would call it that, by being drugged before the Sanhedrin 150 miles away. No, no, no. Saul was to be killed. But he learned of their plan. Somebody told him what the religious leaders were up to, and he hid himself until he could escape the city. Incredibly, Christians were pretty creative, especially when it comes to getting away from getting beat up. The Christians found a way to get him out of the city undetected. Someone owned a home that was part of the city wall. Maybe it had a window or an opening up high. Maybe it faced out into the wilderness or out into the countryside, it looks like. And in the middle of the night, they came up with a plan to put Saul in a big basket. <laughs> it's funny. They had some big baskets back then. Put him in a big old basket. They just lowered him down. And then he went off to Jerusalem. It's amazing. I hope that, um, that you've been emboldened through all of this and encouraged. That you would take this time during communion to reflect upon the truths that you've heard, to analyze your own life, to confess any sin, maybe these areas where you've fallen short, maybe you haven't been prayerful in these things, and just acknowledge these things before the Lord. Bring them to him during your supper time with him right now. This will be our time of response, and also, this will be a great time for you to bring your gifts to the Lord during this time of reflection showing thanks to him by giving generously. Thank you, Father, for your truth. And it's so very practical and it's so very profound. We just thank you for this time. God, I thank you for your grace in my life. And I know I fall short in those areas, God, and they are areas of focus. I thank you that you spoke these things to me days ago before I've been able to proclaim them to your church. I'm a work in progress, but I take joy in knowing that in you, there is progress. You don't leave me behind, no matter how insolent I am, but you are constantly moving me forward and changing me. You're doing the same thing for these lovely folks here. May we enjoy this time of reflection and worship. We lift it all up to you, Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Help yourself.